Hi everyone, I'm so excited to be here with an incredible actor. He was in Disney, he's been in Scotland PA and Heather's Off-Broadway and Wicked and Frozen on Broadway. Now he's making music, he has a YouTube channel, he's doing so many amazing things. Ryan McCartan, I'm so happy to have you here. Thanks for having me. Great, so let's just jump into it. Um, you tweeted recently that self-care is not selfish and you uploaded a video with Sam on your YouTube channel having a whole self-care day um, and talking to your followers about how important it was to appreciate that we're in a pandemic and it's okay to take more time for yourself. Um, but I've definitely noticed online this feeling of being a failure for not being hyper-productive. And I've definitely struggled with those feelings myself. Have you had your own process of dealing with those feelings and how have you gotten through that? Yeah, well, I mean, I, I think the most honest answer to that question is I am I am amidst that process, and I, I probably I think all of us always will be. Um, yeah, you know, it's 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 hard to pinpoint where this obsession with productivity comes from, especially because I, and I don't even I might have misspoken there. I don't even know if it's an obsession with productivity because that that at least seems sort of beneficial, but, but it, you know, it's, it's a little toxic. And I, I don't, I don't know if it just comes from the fact that we can all see each other all the time now, or if, you know, our, our sort of capitalistic more, more, more Western society is just out of control now. I, I'm, I'm not sure what it is. I'm sure it's a combination of a whole myriad of factors, but yeah. my, um, my self-awareness really came from from starting therapy. I started therapy this year um, for a, a whole bunch of other reasons, I thought, you know. Um, and what me and my therapist talk about most often is taking care of myself, you know, that that whether it is in service of my career, in service of my relationships, in service of my family, in service of, of others in general, that, that often the last thing on my list is me. And that, that, that's obviously a pretty backwards way of doing things, right? Because how can you be a, a vessel of, of aid and of service if you, the vessel, are not equipped to handle such things for yourself. Yeah. Um, and, and so, you know, <laughs> a lot of the times the things that I post and the things that I say are, um, hmm, they're, they're reminders to others, but they're also reminders to myself and uh, uh, sort of a snapshot usually of, of something that I'm meditating on or something that I'm working on um, in that particular moment. And so I think a culmination of um, growing up a little bit, starting therapy, and then of course, being in a pandemic, um, it was sort of the, the perfect storm for me to really sit down and be like, wow, if, if, I don't, if I don't slow down, look inward and put myself at the highest priority for myself, I'm, I'm gonna be in trouble. Yeah. And the second that I started to do that, uh, 
sort of, th th there was kind of this, this ripple effect throughout my life that the, the minute the stone hit the water, those first big cascading ripples were like, oh my God, because <laughs> like I, I, when I started focusing more on myself, I lost followers. My friends started getting pissed off. People started texting me being like, why haven't you texted me back yet? What's going on? People were calling me, emailing me, whatever. And so at first there was this jolt of this is wrong. This is the wrong thing to do. You see, you pay a little bit more attention to yourself and everyone, you know, doesn't, uh, uh, doesn't receive it well. Yeah. Um, but then it's sort of like, of course, because whether you're consciously doing it or subconsciously doing it, everyone is putting themselves first. And even if you are putting other people first, externally, the intrinsic value of that is to make either you yourself feel better or make other people like you more, which in turn makes you feel better. So it, every, everyone is inherently selfish. And, and I don't think... I don't think that's a bad thing if we're talking about selfish in terms of self-focused rather yeah. than selfish in terms of self-indulgent. Yeah. Um, but but I, I was met with an inter and interpersonal and both a cultural and psychological block the second that I started to really focus on, not even focus on prioritize, that's the word I want to use, prioritize self-care. Yeah. Uh, because like I said before, self-care has always been important to me and has always been at my, at my list, but it's always at the bottom. Yeah. Accomplish all of the things everyone else needs first and then take care of yourself. And really the, the only seismic shift that I've made is reversing that, taking yeah. care of myself first and then making the time. Um, yeah. And, you know, it's uncomfy because I think people will ultimately call you selfish uh yeah but you you if 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 you aren't if you aren't taking care of yourself if if what you need isn't being fulfilled what's the point what's the point there, there's a potential for you to be completely useless and yeah. and then that can lead down a whole other rabbit hole of 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 shame and of fear and of of betrayal of oneself which can lead to anxiety and depression and all of these terrible things and uh not only is it critically important for me to avoid that for myself but it's also critically important for me to to spread that message so so that uh the people who follow me can avoid that as well um yeah because i think i think the inter the internet is sort of a conduit to a lot of different messages and not often are those messages about like, hey, are you drinking enough water? You know, are you taking care of yourself? Did you sleep enough? Like, are you your number one priority? That that isn't usually out there. Usually, it's I'm I should be your number one priority. Yeah, Follow yeah. me, buy my thing, yeah. you know, whatever. Yeah. It's 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 marketing. And uh, uh, there's a there's a great article in in Axios today about internet addiction and you know all of these things it's also intersectional they all they all tie together well that's actually interesting because yeah i think most of the internet functions like that and then on the occasion i will see somebody post on an instagram story like here's a list like yeah those things did you drink water today how are you doing and i'll sit back and think i have literally spent my entire day or days on end 
just going about my day following what other people are doing and realizing that I'm not living on, but for me, like, what am I doing today? That's, that's for me. And it's also interesting because I think people assume that because there's, they think that there's less happening because we're all at home, but I think the amount of mental and emotional effort that we have to put in to just deal with this on an everyday level is a lot. Well, yeah, I mean, and obviously there's so much gray between these two colors, but it is black and white in the sense that the collective trauma that we're all going through because of COVID will either go acknowledged or unacknowledged by any individual person. And I think that's psychological. I think that's sociological. I think that has to do with where you are and what people are saying and the information that you have access to. But if this trauma goes unacknowledged, it will come back potentially well after all of this is over even more angry and even more out of control because it was never expressed. Yeah. And, uh, you know, there's a big element of self-care that is acknowledgement and acceptance of what is, you know, doing that work for yourself, acknowledging this is not normal, accepting like I have been in my house for a week, you know, without (laughs) leaving, like, like, these, this, this is crazy. This is crazy. And, yeah. and we, we are, are, are social creatures and we are, are, you know, especially in the West, we are, are positioned and instructed to, uh, to be, you know, progressing in some sort of way at any given time. And, and, and this is, a, is sort of a grand freeze on all of that. Um, not to mention all the all of the loss. Not even not even not even to mention the the unbelievable uh, unbelievably substantial loss of life, but the loss of critical milestones, the loss of of important opportunities, the loss of time, especially for you know millennials, Gen Z kids, you know people who who feel that extra pressure of this is that transitional moment where you are graduating high school, going to college, leaving college, entering the workforce. You should be buying your first home. You should be marrying that, you know, partner of yours. You should be having that kid, whatever. And everyone's sort of like, I had a plan to, but now I can't because I have no idea what what tomorrow will bring. You know, if, if all of those things, those really complicated, really messy, really difficult to deal with things go unexpressed, they'll come back stronger and worse. And I worry sometimes that we were so focused on the result, you know, the vaccine, the end, returning back to normal, that we aren't really focusing on the process. Like whether you like it or not, whether you've done it in the past eight months or not, this is a life that we all have to adapt to. And adaptation can't come until acceptance and acknowledgement have happened. And 
that is that is a selfish thing. That is a self-centered thing, centered in oneself, focused on oneself. To to go inward and to accept your reality for exactly what it is. To do that takes self-focus and time and space. And if you fill yourself with hours of scrolling through social media, or even I'm going to go, you know, social, have a socially distanced picnic with my friends, or well, if we have all this time, I guess now we'll take that great road trip. I see a lot of people, myself included, filling their life with stuff to just kind of get through it. Just yeah. eventually this will be over and everything will go back. But, but that, that won't be possible in here. Yeah until the critical work of actually acknowledging what is happening and what has happened to our existence is done. And I'm, I'm, I, I know that I just did a whole spiel about being present, but I'm really worried about what happens after all this, you know, after being in this cocoon of COVID, 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 and being so anxious and so scared, rightly so, when we all sort of return to whatever life is on the other side of this, I mean, I can't imagine the, the for lack of a better term, PTSD yeah. that so many of our brothers and sisters in this world are going to go through globally. And so, you know, was it Maya Angelou? If you wanna, if you wanna change the world, sweep your front porch. Like all I can do is make sure that I'm okay and make sure the people in my life are okay and hope to use the metaphor from before, that by dropping that stone in the pond, the ripples will reach other people who are then taking care of themselves, who are reminding other people to take care of themselves and so on and so forth. And hopefully we can kind of reach a critical mass of people who have found a way to hold this burden safely. Yeah, yeah. And I think it's, it's helpful when you are putting out videos talking about it and when people who are usually putting up, um, when you see people on social media who you expect to put up a certain front, being more open and telling people, like, I'm a part of this, we all are. The people who you usually see because you wanna see their life that's so different than yours, our lives are all the same right now. So let's, if I'm being in this process, like let's all be in this process together. And potentially you've identified a silver lining there. I mean, I hope that that kind of genuine openness from so many people that we're seeing, that vulnerability, I hope that that stays. I mean, yeah. COVID-19 COVID is, is an accelerant to an issue that we as humanity have already been dealing with, which is that we have more unhealthy mental health triggers in this world than humans ever have, you know, with the internet and with substances and with, with, with widely available mis and disinformation and, and, and widely available um, uh, means by which to numb ourselves. Yeah. So, so that vulnerability that we've all seen of everyone sort of coming to grips with, because whether you are, you know, the top of the top or the bottom of the bottom, like, the president of the United States got COVID. You know what I mean? And, and we yeah. can have a whole conversation about politically maybe why that happened for him. But regardless, whether you believe in it or not, whether you're rich or not, whether you're famous or not, like there's no, there's no barrier here. 
And yeah. so in a way, it's this great equalizer that has led, I completely agree with you, to this, to this widespread vulnerability. And as humans in the 21st century, with all of those you know, unhealthy triggers at our disposal, that vulnerability is going to be one of our greatest weapons against the, the, the mental health decline that we could all be experiencing as a consequence. And so I hope that that's a, a silver lining from this time, you know, yeah. that, that we can sort of learn from and, and continue to perpetuate well after the virus has, has left us. Yeah, I mean, still have a way to go. And I think with the length of everything, I feel it more like solidifying within myself. And I, I feel like this time has really sort of helped as, as many negatives as there are. And I'm so grateful that, you know, I have a place to stay and I have food to eat and I'm not, you know, struggling and all of those things. But I think going through a mental struggle, actually giving myself the time, because like running through school, you don't really feel like I was kind of running so fast to get somewhere. And now I'm like, well, where am I really going? And I, and I think that, that there's a lot of hopeful growth that can come out of this through all the difficulty. So. Yeah. There, there's a, there's a benefit. There have been so many terrible things. I don't want to trivialize that or dismiss that at all. Not at all. But as someone yeah. who is, is maybe almost sick with optimism at times, there is a, there is a benefit, I think, to everyone slowing down a bit. Yeah. Because what you just said, I've, I've heard so many people say that, of kind of like, man, like kind of slowing down and, and being forced to just go inward a little bit. I'm kind of like, huh, where am I going and why am I going there so fast? You know, yeah. taking time, taking a breath. Uh, uh, again, I mean, could be a silver lining here. And, and if that mentality reaches a critical mass of people, uh, it could it could change the way that we that we uh, facilitate culture, you know, yeah. and and society, and uh, that would be wonderful if if that was something that came out of this this unprecedented and terrible time. Yeah, I hope so. Um, a very different question. <laughs> um, you have been releasing your own your own music over the past few years. You just released a new song last month, which I love so much. Thank it's you. so amazing. Um, what has been the most sort of surprising or revealing part for yourself as a performer, as a songwriter, as an individual through this like songwriting process through releasing music on your own and that whole thing? Re releasing music in general, uh, especially music that you wrote, is very vulnerable. Yeah. I, you know, as an actor, at the very least, even though acting is incredibly vulnerable as well, as well, at the very least, if, if it's a crappy take, that could be the director's fault. That could be the editor's fault. If it's, if, if it's crappy, you know, dialogue, could be the writer's fault, might be my delivery, but it could be the writer's fault. You know what I mean? It's like mm -hmm. you, you can kind of go to this place of, of allowing yourself to release a little bit because you have to show up and, and do your job. And then 
the director and the producers and the editors and post-production and everyone takes it and does what they do with it and then they release the finished product and you don't really have a say in that. Yeah. So there's, a, there's, there's permission to kind of just do your job and release it. With music, if you write it, there's a piece that's sort of like, okay, this is me. But even still, if you write it and then someone else produces it or someone else arranges it, there's kind of this piece of, okay, well, I did my part, but, but someone else is, is on this journey too, or, or, or their name is attached to this, or, or, or I can sort of hide behind them a little bit. Yeah. Um, but now, as I've sort of dedicated myself to learning how to arrange, produce, write, sing, engineer, mix, you know, record, it's, I have nothing to hide behind. Yeah. So when, when I'm releasing a song, it's not just, gosh, I, I, I hope that you like the message of this song. It's not just, gosh, I hope you like my voice. It's also like, I, I hope that, that the, the sonic frequencies that I worked <laughs> for 10 hours on are pleasing to your ears in whatever headphones or speakers you're listening to my song through, yeah. you know. I hope I hope that 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 the volume is okay. I, I hope that this sound is as pleasing to you as it is me. I mean, every single every single aspect of the song is my choice, and so that means every single aspect of the song I am leaving open to be judged. Yeah, and that's a whole new level of vulnerability that I've become simultaneously addicted to and terrified of. Yeah. Um, uh, but um, man, oh man, it's it's been such a, 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 a humbling and exciting journey. Uh, I have so much respect for the people who have produced my songs in the past. Where I'm just like, oh my god! I just I remember like, especially when I was working on, you know, I released an album that I crowdfunded a long time ago when I was still on Disney Channel, and then. Uh, uh, Dove Cameron and I had the, the Girl in the Dreamcatcher project. Mm. And I just, I remember like sending those producers emails being like, yo, it's been three weeks. Like, I want to hear the first mix of this. And now that I'm doing it, I'm like, oh my God, I can't believe that I was rushing them because now I know how complicated yeah. it is. And, and the, the amazing thing about so many producers, and I hope, I hope to get there at some point, is that, is that they can spend so much time making something seem so effortless. But the, it, it seems almost, whether you're talking about, you know, a performer in a movie or, or a singer on a stage or a producer in a, in a studio, it seems that the, if you can trick someone into thinking that this is just so chill, so seamless, so easy, uh, that actually takes the most effort and, and the yeah. most skill, and most mastery. And uh, uh, so, yeah, I mean, the, the, the two words, the, the, you know, to your question of what has surprised you, the two words that really come to mind are, are humility and vulnerability uh, uh, as, I've, as I've been um, going through this process. And the, the other thing is it's all self-taught as well. You know, something that I kind of joke about is, I have a lot of friends who are producers, but it's kind of tricky 
to go to them and be like, hey, will you teach me how to do the thing that I once paid you to do for me? You know, kind of like going to a shoemaker and saying, no, no, just teach me how you make shoes. Yeah. You know, they're kind of like, no. <laughs> I could do it why for you and get that? paid. Yeah. Yeah. Why would I do that? And and and, and I, I respect and appreciate that completely um, um, because everyone has to make a living. Uh, and so th there's there's sort of a whole other level to that of like, even even when I feel like I have advanced, it's 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 by my own sort of volition and 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 by doing my own research and you know I don't okay well there are like a billion videos on the internet that you can either pay for or that are for free and it's some dude or some chick being like I'm so and so and I produce these songs and you I'm credible for these reasons and you should listen to me and I'm like God I hope so. But just like anything, there are so many schools of thought on how you compress a drum and how you EQ a voice and all of these really nerdy things about music. And, I'm, you know, you hear so many different opinions and then you then also become the filter of that information, which is another aspect that could be judged by the people in the music industry being like, why do you compress the drum that way? This mix yeah. doesn't sound yeah. so good. And I'm just like, I thought, you know, so there's, there's a lot to it. And uh, uh, it is very scary something that I sort of promised myself was that for my music done had to be better than perfect. Yeah. That I wanted to release music that meant something to me and that I was excited about regardless of whether it was the perfectly mixed song, you know, regardless of whether, you know, Scooter Brown or Braun was going to hear it and be like, you're my next guy. You know, it's like, that wasn't important to me. It was like, I, I want to display my process. I want to display my mistakes. I, I, I resent and push back on this theory that if you are in the spotlight and you have any sort of notoriety at all, that there's a demand that you be perfect. I, I, I refute that at, 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 by every stripe. Um, I'm still learning. I've never claimed that that's not the case. And I will still still be learning in 10 years yeah. and 10 years after that and 10 years after that. And that's the way that it should be. Yeah. And I think it's it's more fun for for everybody to see that growth because obviously the music you put out last year two years ago is different and the music that you put out yeah. next time and the things you're going to work on next time are going to be different. And to actually yeah. get to like hear those things back to back on like Spotify or be like, wow, like he, you were talking about this thing on your stories about working on this thing and then I saw how it played out like in your music. Mm -hmm. I think that that's such a, it's such a sort of, it creates this like community and this sense of, of like, I understand this pro of, even though I know nothing about music production or any of these things, I can see your growth. And in turn, I see your love for music even more through understanding what the background of it is, is about in, you know, in the tiniest way that I can. Um, and that, that's an old acting concept. Stanislavski said universality is in the, is in the specific. Um, but but that applies, I think, to all art, that, that if I can be so specifically open, so specifically descriptive about every single step of my process every single time, yeah. that even though it seems like really getting into the weeds and really saying, okay, this is my process, this is how I'm doing it, this is how it's different than last time, while that seems like maybe people could get a little bit like, I don't care about this stuff. No, you've, you've absolutely articulated something that I think is so important about art. When I share and when people, my peers and stuff share that really specific part of the process, it becomes universal. Because yeah. whether you are a total music junkie or not, 
you can see someone trying and failing and learning and growing. And that is a universal feeling. And putting that on display, not being afraid of that, I think I think there's there's a there's a mandate for for all artists to do that as often as possible. If nothing else, just to sort of take away this barrier that makes it seem like the arts are sort of untouchable. And like I said, once you sort of get to this certain echelon, you stop learning and now you're just perfect. It's the not so, not so. And of course, I'm not, I'm not talking about me, but it's like, you know, the, the Oscar and Grammy award winners yeah. way up there. Like they're yeah. still learning too. Like if, if, if the process ever stops, it's not worth being a part of anymore. Uh, uh, and so to display that, I find, I find really rewarding, really challenging and really important. It's also just interesting to think like, hey, we're all listening to the same song right now. We can't see each other. We can't connect but we're all listening to the same thing. We're all going through the same experience of listening to your song for the first time or listening to it for the hundredth time. And, and it's, it's fun to feel like you're a part of something that way, especially right now. So. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Um, and what's something that when you were growing up, you were told to do or not to do as a performer that now as you've worked in it professionally, you quite frankly know is kind of a load of BS. Their arts education is so important, and I'm 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 not saying that it's not, but of course, yeah. but there's a, there's a way to teach art that is inside out, mm -hmm. right? That is start with you. What do you want to do? How like what do you sound like? What what do you bring to the table as an actor? What are your musical tastes as a musician? Start with you, and then we'll incorporate all of the, the lessons and the tips and the tricks and the tools and all of that. That to me is, is what art should be. Yeah. Everyone can do everything that you can't do. I tell my students this all the time. Everyone can do everything you can't do. No one can do everything you can do. It is incumbent on us to enrich, empower, and celebrate the things that are completely and totally individual and unique about us. Because if we do that, and if we get as good as possible at being this, and then using this as a conduit to make the art, at least we can guarantee that no one else will make what we're making. Yeah. Doesn't mean it's gonna be better than everyone else, doesn't mean it's gonna be worse than anyone else, but it will be individual and it will be unique. And that is what art has to be. Universality is in the specific. Yeah. I feel that I was encouraged sometimes to take more of an outside-in approach. Mm -hmm. These are the tools this is what good acting is. Look at the greats who do it this way. Copy them, put it on you, and then you'll be good. Yeah. And that encouraged competition, comparison, doubt, copying. Mm -hmm. Completely antithetical to what I think art should be. If yeah. art is about expression, and you are expressing someone else's ideas, it, there's gonna be a huge cognitive dissonance that is not going to relate to people. Yeah. First and foremost, it's not gonna to relate to you. And if you aren't connected in it, if it's not visceral to you, it's, it's never gonna break out because you aren't gonna like it. Yeah. So I, I, I think that that's a load of BS. I think the idea that that now listen i mean there is so much inspiration that you can draw from other people 
But if you're drawing inspiration from Leonardo DiCaprio because you want to be the next Leonardo DiCaprio, you're doing it wrong. If you're drawing inspiration from Leonardo DiCaprio because you notice that Leonardo DiCaprio is Leonardo DiCaprio every time he does anything, and you really respect that, that confidence and that sense of self, and mm-hmm. the way that he expresses that sense of self is attractive to you, that seems right to me. So there's a way mm-hmm. to draw inspiration that's, that's, that's critical and intelligent and helpful. And there's a way that, to draw inspiration that frankly makes you feel like crap about yourself. And I have heard so many students that I teach talk about classes that they've been to or schools that they've gone to, where it's like, we're going to strip you of all of your parts. We're going to stamp a cookie cutter on you and you, we're going to make you the perfect Broadway actor. Mm-hmm. And it's like, that's not real. Right. That's yeah. not real. There, there is no factory that can manufacture success in the arts. Mm-hmm. You, it's, it's not real. There's no path to take. There's not, there's not one school to go to. It just, it doesn't work like that. It is, it is a lot about authenticity, a lot about drive, and a hell of a lot about luck and, mm-hmm. uh, and perseverance as well. Um, so the idea that art is at all formulaic in that sense I just, I don't buy it. And I'm a little pissed at the people who tried to sell that to me a while ago. Yeah. Have you, since you've been teaching classes, has there been anything else in particular that you've noticed from like up and coming artists of particular concerns or sort of things that people across the board are saying about what they're nervous about or what they are working on most when trying to get into theater and and, then get eventually to Broadway if that's the goal? Yeah, well, um, yeah, so two things. One, I mean, I think right now, what I'm hearing a lot of is, what do I do? Yeah. You know, how, 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 how do I recover from all of this time that's being wasted if right now I should be in a classroom at a conservatory or I should be moving out of my parents' house to a major market and really selling myself and hitting the ground running. That's what I would be doing right now, but I'm not like, what, what does that mean for me? Yeah. And it's, it's a lot about trying to, and again, that's sort of formulaic, this idea that you go to high school and then you go to secondary school and then you pursue your career and it all happens in this critical window. And if you miss it, you're screwed that's formulaic, that's insincere, and it's damaging to, to, to the egos and to the hopes of a lot of young people. And so for me, it's about decoupling them from this idea that they've sort of married themselves to of as long as I do A, B, C, D, E, F, and G, I'll have the career that I want. It's like, if you set yourself up with a mentality that if you cross off, you know, if you tick all the boxes, you're going to be successful. You're going to be really disappointed when you tick all the boxes and you aren't successful. Or you're going to be really disappointed when the dude next to you isn't ticking any of those boxes and is way more successful than you because you've completely forgotten to factor in luck and connections and being in the right place at the right time and all of the crazy cosmic forces at play in anything. But whether you want to be an actor, a lawyer, or anything in between, the idea that you just have to follow these steps and then everything's going to work out for you is crazy. But for some reason, it's really easy to instill that into a young artist's brain because this career, I think in particular, is so unknown that people are just looking 
to a branch to cling to. Yeah. Um, so I hear that a lot. And I'm just trying, to, I'm trying to tell people, first of all, there is no critical window of opportunity. When COVID is over, you'll hit the ground running and you'll try and you'll try and you'll try and you're going to be fine. You know, you're, it's not like if your career didn't happen in 2020, it's never going to happen. You'll try again in 2021 or 2022 and it's all still going to be there for you. The other yeah. thing that I try to tell people is just participate in any way. Like what I tell people who are really worried about that is you showed up to this I know we're on Zoom. I know it, it doesn't feel the same, but you showed up to this. You are participating. You are honing your craft. If you keep doing that forever, you will be a cut above all of the people who won't. If you are willing to participate, you will learn more often than people who aren't willing to participate. And that will put you in a higher echelon than your competition. Right. Um, and, then, and then another thing that I hear a lot is, and it, it's, these are sort of mirror concepts of one another, but like, how do I get to Broadway? You know, and it's like, that's a very admirable goal and a, uh, obviously an ex extremely desirable dream. And I hope that that happens for you, but you shouldn't be focusing all your attention on being on Broadway. You should focus your attention on being the best performing artist you can possibly be. And if you remove those, like if you have these horse blinders on and you say, I'm going to Broadway, I'm going to Broadway, I'm going to Broadway, and you move to New York and you never leave and you only audition for shows, th there could be a whole cosmic path for you that led you to movie star status that you completely missed because your eyes weren't open. Mm -hmm. And so I try to tell people, it, it's, it's not about being so specific that it cuts you off. It's about expanding your surface area as wide as it can get so that any and all opportunities can hit you, casting a really wide net so that you hopefully can at least reel one fish in. Um, and that, that's something that I try to instill in people a lot. A mentor told me to this and I repeat it to them and I'll repeat it to you now. There are many roads up the mountain, but there's only one mountain top. So if the mountain top is your highest desire, of being a professional performer and making your money that way, there are so many ways to get there. And if you only pick one path and refuse to climb any other way, you might be missing a straight shot up the mountain, insisting yeah. that you have this grueling climb. Right. Not useful, not useful. And also again, formulaic, and I think very instilled in young performers, this sort of like do it this way, this is the only way there is to do it kind of mentality that I just think is so dangerous. I, my sister went to a four-year program. I think if she was sitting here, she would say going to college was the best decision she ever made. I dropped out of school after a semester, and I think that's the best decision I ever made. People are different. People have different lives. People learn differently. People experience things differently. That's about the individuality. You have to encourage what you want and what you need, and you need to follow your impulses, and you need to be willing to stray off the path in hopes that you might find a better one. Yeah, yeah. I think that people's judgment of the quote-unquote abnormal, which I don't think it's abnormal, but people say it is, is a lot of what deters people from doing things or taking opportunities because they think, but if I do this opportunity and fail and I won't have college, what am I going to do? It's like you make a backup plan otherwise and you can do it. But I think it often stops people from, from taking chances and doing things. I mean, you should have a plan, like don't jump into something if you don't know what you're going to do. But sometimes I, I, you know, it feels, feel bad for people who just decide to go the safer way because everybody else is telling them to do that. And they are like, well, I'm 18 or I'm 20 or I'm whatever. If somebody else is telling me to do this and they're older or they're more experienced, like I must be in the wrong. 
kind of thing. Yeah. Like all of those years of school, all of that money you have to pay, all of the residencies and all of the things, it's like, I mean, everything is hard. Everything's a challenge. Yeah. And yeah, the, the judgment and the shame and the fear uh, that, that, that young people, I think, are encouraged to feel because it's, it's, sort of, it's sort of used as a crop to whip them in the right, right direction. Yeah. You know, Don't if I naive. make you afraid of, if, yeah, yes, if I make you afraid of the arts or if I make you ashamed of the arts, then you'll take the safe choice. You know, it's like if COVID-19 has taught us anything, there are no safe choices. Whether you're a doctor or an actor, or you work at McDonald's, or you work for one of the biggest Fortune 500 com- companies in the world, like we're all it's under all the nuts. same. <laughs> exactly. So, so you know, what's that? Uh, it's it, Jim Jim Carrey, I think. He uh, he famously gave a um, a graduation speech where he talked about his dad, who wanted to go into comedy, and. Uh, ended up taking the safe route and being like an accountant or something and then mm-hmm. ended up getting laid off. Yeah. And J- Jim Carrey's remarks are somewhere along the line of if, 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 you can, if you can still fail at doing something you hate, you might as well try to do something you love. Yeah. Because exactly. failure is inevitable no matter what path you take. So taking a safe path because you won't fail, that critical fear of failure is so toxic and so unrealistic. The, all of the best things that have ever happened to me have been a direct consequence of failure, have been a direct consequence of not getting what I want. Yeah. I, 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 I wish we taught young kids that lesson more often than giving them trophies and praising them for success. Success mm-hmm. doesn't teach you anything other than how to get a big head. Yeah, you yeah. Know? Failure should be should be welcomed. Failure should be enticing. It should be exciting. You know, you yeah. learn more. You become wiser. It's better that way. Yeah, and teaching. I, I do wish that was more like a part of school. Of like, why can't we have classes that have a focus on, like, how do you create backup plans for yourself? How do you understand what makes you a unique person and what makes you marketable? How do you understand what to do when you fail? How can you learn how to take that and turn it into something else? But it's yeah. always just, I want to teach you how not to fail. And that sucks, but that's the system. So, Absolutely. you know. I, I think there's a parallel issue in the education, too, about an emphasis on knowledge instead of yeah. wisdom. Mm-hmm. That knowledge is important, and there are so many things scholastically that should be taught in that realm. But to me... To me, you know, knowledge is book smarts, wisdom is street smarts, you know what I mean? And, and, yeah. and we, don't, we don't teach people enough about that, that wisdom component, like, like philosophy, sociology, psychology, the social sciences, these things of like, what is life all about? And what happens to you when you're down on your luck? And what happens to you when your neurotransmitters fire in this particular way and how do we respond to that and what's healthy and what what options are open to you if you have hit a point of critical failure you know how does insurance work how do you get a therapist is it okay to talk to people about these things should we feel shame about these things these are conversations that even in the 21st century are still somehow taboo in some places and to me it's just like we have to advance past this this obsession that we have with 
feeding shame. It's, 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 it's killing us and it's yeah. useless. It's, it's completely useless. I love, I love Brene Brown, you know, shame researcher. We need more people like her. Yeah. It's, it's so weird how like, yeah, cause we, it's it's funny how we try to pretend that failure doesn't exist but we try to push shame to be as big and as looming and as constricting as it possibly can be because right it's that's how we pretend failure doesn't exist by shaming people into never failing my therapist described perfectionism as a mental illness and i was like whoa that i needed to hear that (laughs) Like, it's, it's a mental illness, it's a form of anxiety. And it's akin to anxiety in the sense that it is there whether you like it or not, and it's not rooted in anything real. Perfectionism is impossible, and yet it's instilled on so many people. And look at how we acclaim overachievers, you know. But a lot of the times overachievers compartmentalize all of their grief, shove it as far down as they can, and then bask in their successes and hope that they can subsidize their happiness on their fleeting successes without ever actually acknowledging the things that, that they've shoved down. Yeah. That is, that's Western society in, that's Western society on a business card right there. <laughs> shove it down and keep succeeding. Like, and I just, if there, if, if there was ever a time for us to learn that that doesn't work, it feels like COVID-19 would be that time. (laughs) People can understand that. I mean, it's like, yeah, all what we're seeing is, is failure one after another. And what all we're doing is seeing failures and trying to pick up the pieces. And I think people are literally learning right now how to process and deal with failure on a mass scale and it's such a it's a very intense experience which of course it is but it's also very telling that this is something that we should have been prepared for and because we don't talk about things we are not mentally or emotionally prepared to deal with it when it actually came around and 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 there are two kind of fundamental components of that. One is an observation, which I just think is so fascinating. So you're totally right. You've identified it brilliantly. This is the result of a national failure, the way that the United States is, is, is dealing with this gripping COVID-19 crisis, the the reason that we are one of the worst places to be right now is the direct result of a national failure. And on a national level, look at the way the population handles that failure. Half of us say, oh my God, this is terrible. What can we do to fix it? And half of us say, doesn't exist. That's shame. Shove it down, keep succeeding. Well, look at the stock market. Well, what about the economy? Let's find a tangible metric for our success and ignore the tangible metrics of our failure. Yeah. But the, 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 the supplemental component of that is the people who feel that way, who ignore the very real and perpetual crisis, they aren't perpetrators. They're victims. They're victims of a society, of a system that instructs them, ignore, ignore anything that makes you uncomfortable and 
continue crying wolf, as it were, of all of your successes and all of the reason that everything's okay. Just plug your ears and sing la 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 and it doesn't exist and eventually it'll go away. That's the way that we're taught to deal with things. I, I think especially white people, I think especially white men, that's the way that we're taught to deal with things. Just ignore mm -hmm. it, it'll go away. Mm -hmm. that's, that's a systemic failure and the people who believe in that philosophy and have, in, and have uh, absorbed that philosophy have been indoctrinated to do so. They are victims of a system and we need to find some way to bring them with us yeah. because, because we can't go forward without them. We as a society can't go forward and just say, though half of us back there, screw them. We'll just leave them back there. We can't do that. Yeah. They will, they will, they will drag us back until we are willing to help them forward. My sister works for Lululemon and something that they talk about a lot on the corporate level is call people in don't call them out mm. call people in you know remind yeah. people of their best selves remind them who they once were or who they could be call them in bring them into the fold bring them forward or else we will continue to be wrenched back yeah. uh, uh, but you're you're absolutely right you silver tongued it as you often do this is a result of failure mm. and the way that we deal with failure half of us in this society Shove it down. Ignore the shame. Yeah. This this is this is nothing new. This is just a really public and overt display of of a cultural poison that we as I think uh, Americans or maybe just as westerners have dealt with for a very long time. We can't the the problems of the 21st century are not well, we'll just build a bunch of tanks and send them overseas and that'll handle it. It's like the, the, the problems of the 21st century are pandemics and climate crises and social issues and cyber security. Like whether it's everyone needs to be recycling and driving clean cars, whether it's everyone needs to wear a mask and be careful around each other, whether it's everyone needs to develop technological fluency to understand what's real and what's fake whether it's everyone needs to accept everyone, no matter what they look like, who they love, or what they believe in, no matter what it is, what it comes down to is a critical mass of all people have to get on this level or all of us are doomed. Yeah. There, there's, there's, no, there's no, well, we'll send 100,000 soldiers and they'll fight the battle and we'll cheer for them over here while our, our life stays the same. The, 21st, the problems of the 21st century are much more uh permeable than that yeah they're much more widespread and so it's like we don't have a choice but to bring people into that fold and I, I i don't know how we do it but i don't think going on twitter and shaming people for not being there yet is the way to do it again that's yeah. the calling in versus calling out thing and 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 yeah. and if i i, I just I don't know. We got to figure that out. And I, there are people much smarter than me who I'm sure have their finger on the pulse of that. But I, I, I hope that, uh, uh, that we sort of see a, a change in perception and a change of, of heart on, yeah. on all of that. Cause, cause we need all of us to be in this fight to solve these problems. Yeah.
I hope so. Um, and with COVID and everything that's happened, um, unfortunately shows like Frozen had to suffer in the process, which makes me very sad. But do you see any possibility of reinvention for the show or in general, in your perspective on Broadway and theater in total, what are your hopes and dreams for what we can do to make sure that there is a safe and successful eventual return and what you think that will look like? Yeah, so uh, to your first question about Frozen, I mean, I'm obviously incredibly disappointed because I was so new to the show and the cast was so brilliant and the crew was so brilliant and I would love to have done it more. Um, but D Disney is a company that, that has so many plans and that is planning, you know, 10 or 20 years in advance. So, you know, I, I'm not going to pretend to know what into what went into that decision, but, but they made a, di a business decision that they felt comfortable with and, uh, I kind of think it's as simple as that. They also, they still are planning on doing whenever theater comes back, they're still planning on doing the national tour here on this side of the world. They're opening, I think a German company, a London company, an Australian company. I mean, Frozen is going to be all over the place. Yeah. Uh, uh, so, you know, it, it, are they going to revamp the show and put it on Broadway? I doubt it. I don't think they need to. And I think that's okay. Uh, uh, I, I, I can't, out of one side of my mouth, preach to the people who lost their graduation or lost their prom or lost their, you know, first year out of college. It's all going to be okay without challenge. There can't be change. You know, I can't say that to them and not say that to me. So, mm -hmm. I, yeah, I, it's okay that it's not coming back. And, and, you know, all of the people who worked on that show are incredibly talented. And I know for a fact that they're all going to land on their feet, myself included. Um, in terms of the future of theater, it's a economic issue, I think, first and foremost, intersectional with the public health crisis, that even, even when we have a critical mass of people who have been vaccinated, to assume that that means we can shove 2,000 people into a crowded theater without any sort of adaptation, mm. I think is not only foolish, but unsafe. Yeah. So yeah. my guess is the fastest way to return to Broadway is selling theaters at half capacity and giving mm -hmm. people a space between. Mm -hmm. If that is the case, you cut the amount of money you make in half if yeah. theater becomes half as lucrative, it has to then compensate by becoming half as expensive. Right. My hope is that if that is the case, we still pay carpenters and set designers and actors and musicians a fair rate, but we put on shows that are very stripped and experimental and minimalist mm -hmm. and that perhaps the renaissance of Broadway will be pieces that are incredibly story driven and not pieces that rely on commercialism to draw people in mm -hmm. and that perhaps there could be some sort of 
advent of really experimental, creative, daring new work that could revitalize theater writ large in a really, really exciting way. That to me is my sort of, the mental exercise that I do to kind of find the best case scenario of how, of how Broadway and the West End and theater strips all over the world can kind of come back to life yeah. in a way that's not only safe, not, not only fair, but also potentially really artistically satisfying. Yeah, I mean, I think, yeah, it's always good to try to find a silver lining in anything. And I do think that there right. is a possibility to, to do shows that, yeah, are more simplistic. I mean, Falsettos did an entire show with a, a block of, with a cube of furniture. And I think that there is a possibility to do things that are more simplistic, but still hold a lot of weight. I just think that it's also, it comes into, well, stage drawing can't be a thing, not as, at least not for a while, not in the same way that it was. And unfortunately, the sort of background, yeah, like commercialism part of it has to change. So hopefully it would cause people to put on shows and people to see shows in a way that is different, in a way that isn't just, oh, I saw the show because it was all over the internet because this and this certain thing, but more about like a general love of just, man, I just miss shows so bad. And I just want to see things that just sort of reignite my love and my passion for the experience. Um, and And I hope that we can get to a point where people don't feel anxious. I think that that's something that is the most important thing of, it's supposed to be a good experience and I hope that we can do it in a way that doesn't make you feel negative when you're there, but instead is something that is actually helpful towards our just desire to socialize and, and re-engage with people in a way that doesn't feel like overwhelming and too much. And, and that's why I think theaters have to, theater owners and, and, and the Broadway League and everyone have to implement physical manifestations of that comfort Mm -hmm. showing people look we have purell stage stands all over the place look all of these seats are taped off no one can be there like look we have lines for the bathroom look we have occupancy rules in in at the merch booth you know to to show people we have thought about this from every angle and the this is the safest possible way that you can experience this art form so that people can leave those worries at the door and know that it's a safe place for them to come. Yeah. Uh, because that's what theater has always provided, a safe place for anyone. Mm-hmm. And uh, mm-hmm. there needs to be some sort of adaptation for the way that the world is currently to continue that long honored tradition of letting people feel safe in a theater. Mm-hmm. And what do you think about like, Try people asking for them to record shows, try to sell it online. Because obviously there's a difference in experience, but a lot of people are saying, well, you could charge a similar amount of money and you could record it and you could post it and, and you could make your money that way. Yeah, well, I, I don't think it's fair to charge a similar amount of money. I mean, frankly, 
again, so if another sort of silver lining to all of this could be that the massive barrier to entry economically of how expensive it is to see a Broadway show could also sort of plummet, which would be fantastic because it, it, it shouldn't cost you $500 to see Hamilton. I understand like that show is brilliant and all of those people deserve all the money in the world. But, but if you are a first time theater goer from Montana and you make $40,000 a year, it is not fair to price gouge you for the opportunity to see something that's going to change your life. It's just not fair. So we have to figure out a way to make it more equitable. Um, Putting theater on video could be a great way to make theater equitable, to not have people... I think what Hamilton did was fantastic, right? Put it on Disney Plus for the price of of a subscription. You can watch this thing. It was it the same as watching Hamilton live? No. But was it still fantastically done? Yes. Mm-hmm. I, again, it's like you just, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. We just have to keep participating. Yeah. You know, again, if I'm telling my students that, you know, the, the world should be telling us that too. If, if there's a way to digitize it, to make it safe, to make people experience theater in the comfort of their homes for now, I, my answer 10 out of 10 times is you should, you should do it and try to figure it out. I hope, you know, in whatever way it happens, I, I mean, I, I miss it so much, but I also do know that it'll take time for me and for a lot of other people to sort of get your head in that space of, of engaging with others. And also it had, there has to be a certain level of trust that, you know, if somebody doesn't feel well, that hopefully that also by changing the price and maybe making things less expensive, somebody wouldn't say, well, I paid like $300 for this ticket. And even though I don't feel well, I really want to go that hopefully if it does, if it's not that kind of situation that people will not feel the same thing of, Oh no, this is expensive. And this is something that I have to do now, even if it's going to put people at risk. So uh, you should incentivize people to give their tickets back. You should incentivize them. You should say, if you're feeling sick, we will refund the full price of your ticket and facilitate getting you a new one. Like they should incentivize people to keep each other safe rather than saying, sorry, we don't have a return policy. You either use it or lose it and force people to your point to come to the theater if they're feeling sick or what have you. Uh, uh, Again, I mean, it's just, there are ways for everyone to still make money for everyone to still get to see what they want to see and for everyone to be safe all at the same time. But it's going to be very different than how it was, as I fondly refer to as times BC before Corona. <laughs> so so if we, if we are willing to adapt and understand that the change is going to be uncomfy but necessary, and if we're willing to take risks and figure it out, by the way, the people who are taking risks are millionaire producers anyway, so I think they have the capital to calm down for a second, not focus so much on the dollars and cents, and just focus on getting it back to the people. Mm-hmm. Every single box that needs to be checked for every single person will still be checked. We can do it. I know that we can. It's just going to be about being creative and being willing to adapt, being willing to do these things that incentivize people to do the right things, give them comfort that the theaters are doing the right things. And to your point about comfort, I mean, it, it's not just the audience's comfortability. As a type 1 diabetic, every time that I see a breakdown or I'm up for something, I'm like 
what's the COVID protocol here? If I'm going to come shoot your movie in Atlanta or do your show in New York, like, how do I know I'm safe? Right. Uh, uh, so, so, you know, again, it's, it's intersectional. You can't protect X amount of people and not protect Y amount of people. You can't make the money, but also screw the patrons. It, it all has to be synergistic. And yeah, that's going to take a lot of think tanks. That's going to take a lot of time. That's going to take a lot of adaptation. And the only, the only barrier of doing that is greed and laziness. And, uh, the people who should be in charge of the next generation of Broadway should possess neither of those qualities. Yeah, and I mean, that's the benefit of it being a creative field and having so many amazing thinkers and innovators who are a part of it is that this is, it's a challenge, but it's something that's, that can be a, a good and exciting experience to say, hey, let's figure something out. Like, this can be a great way for us to, you know, have people not cramped together in tiny seats, find a way for more people to enjoy Broadway, make it a more collective experience. It's surrounding something scary, but it's creating something that is full of love and, and you know, full of happiness and lots of different emotions, but that in the end, we're trying to get something back to people who love it and the people who are creating it, you know, love it too. So it can be, done in a way that hopefully will make everybody happy one way or another in the end but we'll see. More. yeah but thank you so much for answering all my questions i really appreciate your time um and if there's anything you want to rep anything you want to let people know about you can you can do so I mean, yeah, I, I have a new song out. It's called High and Low. It's on it's on Spotify and Apple Music and all of the places. I would love for you to uh, to give it a spin and uh, and send me a message and tell me what you think about it. And the other great thing about me making all my music is that you know I've had people reach out and be like, I'd really love to hear a song like this from you, and I can do that. So I have no gatekeepers. I have no labels or, or anyone saying you have to make songs like this. We can't, you know, if, if you, if you like my style and want to hear something else from me, I super, super, super encourage people to send me DMS or send me a tweet or whatever, because I read them and I love to hear feedback from people. Um, so, uh, uh, you know, I, I find it, uh, uh akin to, you know, uh, almost a, medium of collaboration and I, I i really love that so uh please listen to my music and and don't be a stranger when you do great thank you so much of course thank you <laughs>